0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to ten years at Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door; it was a number. and the inmates understood that. If you're out there,
2: they would cast period in here just lay down
1: those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back that stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, i gave it back to them.
0: That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee, pretty quick they'd hatch a plan in there to to get
1: under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast dedicated to the Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here, spent time here. I am Sky, and I'm here talking to Samuel. Samuel, how's it going?
3: Good. How's it back being in Idaho?
0: It is good. Always good to be home. It's exceptionally green right now, and I don't know if that's because of all the rain that I think the area got while I was gone, or if it was because I was living in Los Angeles where, like, yes, things Mm were were green but it was also the city so there just like wasn't grass everywhere like there is out in the suburbs where I live but yes so good to be back so unfortunately Anthony could not be here again today we are continually crossing our fingers that he'll be able to join us on the next one but again he just is busy the site is busy which is good we're very thankful for the business and for everyone who's interested in learning about Idaho history and the prison history so please keep coming but hopefully we'll have him back soon
3: it's been a great school season so far we've been very busy with a lot of educational groups. You, you pick the right time to come to Boise. It mm-hmm. is incredibly green. You've mm-hmm. got lots of flowers. Yeah, Go in the foothills. They're all blooming right now.
0: Well, I mean, Idaho's just the greatest. Maybe I'm biased. I am. But let's hear maybe about some of the not great parts. So who are you talking about today?
3: So I'm going to be talking about Oscar Herbert, better known as Tex. It all started when William William drank too much, as he attended a fall country dance in November of 1891. The cowboys and young women participating seemed to be having a swell old time, so when William began to ramble, they just ignored him. Why listen to a sad, intoxicated cowboy when there's whiskey to be drunk and dancing partners waiting to be swung around? When his rambles changed from coyotes to the dead body in the desert, no one noticed at first. But something about William's words sent a shiver down. Billy Ayers' spine. And after listening to the story a little bit more closely, Ayers decided he needed to get Deputy Sheriff Green to investigate. The two men rode their horses to the spot William described. There they did, in fact, discover a body. William Williams had been telling the truth. After 30 days of decomposing in the elements, not to mention the scavenger, the corpse presented a most upsetting appearance. Only half of the face remained, the rest eaten by coyotes. But enough remained to recognize John Andrews, better known as Dutch John. Within two weeks, O.S. Herbert, better known as Tex, confessed to killing Dutch John. But even after being found guilty and sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary, many community members felt frustrated that justice had not actually been served. As conspiracy theories began to run wild and the truth became more obscure, what really occurred between these two gunslingers in 1891 has become one of Idaho's most tantalizing unsolved mysteries. On May 12, 1866, in the city of Savannah, Missouri, Flem Powers Herbert and Virginia Ann Height welcomed their fourth child into the world and named him Oscar Selim Herbert. Oscar went by a variety of names, including O.S., but for simplicity's sake, I'll use the name most recognizable for him here in Idaho, Tex. Born only one year after the end of the Civil War, Texas family found themselves in a very divided Missouri. Missouri, a slave state, found itself the battleground for 1,200 engagements, with an estimate 110,000 of its citizens fighting for the Union and 40,000 joining the Confederacy, mostly fighting for The guerrilla warfare bands referred to as Bushwhackers. Perhaps due to the remaining hostility after the war, the Herberts left Missouri and headed to Salt Creek, Iowa, around the time Tex turned four. The Herberts were active Methodists and made sure their son attended Sunday school. We will discuss in more depth later on. Tex's education is questionable. He could read and write, but claimed he only attended school for six months. The majority of the family eventually relocated to Nebraska. And at the age of 11, Tex left home. He spent much of his formative years doing ranch work and learning to become a cowboy. Tex had chosen a unique period of time to become a cowboy. The great cattle drives of Texas to Kansas reached its height in 1877, supplying beef to most of the nation.
0: I bet that's why he's called Tex.
3: The beef industry industry. coming coming from Texas. But with the completion of the Union Pacific Railroad in 1869, long cattle drives became significantly less necessary. Not to mention due to the continued migration west from homes, farms, and immigrants made open range for cattle less of a viable option. Cowboys, of course, turned to the mountains, moving their cattle to less settled areas, making Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho some of the last free-range areas of the West. But in 1886, the year Tex turned 20, one horrible year changed ranching forever. After an unusually hot summer, the winter to follow between 1886 to 1887 decimated the West, with temperatures dropping to negative 50 below, resulting in hundreds of thousands of cattle freezing to death. This winter alone destroyed an estimated 90% of western livestock. The big die-up as it's referred to, ended true free-range ranching forever. It put huge amounts of small ranchers out of business, whose farms were then bought by big ranchers who saw their power grow significantly during the turmoil. Of course, with huge amounts of cowboys out of work and with big ranchers becoming more aggressive for total industry domination, these factors created a perfect condition for widespread cattle stealing, better known as rustling. In 1890, after the death of his father, Tex found himself in eastern Idaho. Idaho still offered more ranch jobs than many other states. But it had been a hard few years for Idaho cattlemen, who were currently experiencing a difficult phenomenon. Their cattle were disappearing, often only a few at a time but gone, with little or no trace. Between butchers checking brands and law enforcement inspecting cows entering and leaving the state, the missing livestock left the community baffled. These cows were simply... Disappearing after authorities failed to capture these rustlers, the locals of Pocatello decided to take the law into their own hands. Cattlemen H. E. Rand, Thomas Sparks. J.W. Kenning and W.M. Burke started to put together a plan with the amount of disappearances and no signs that they were being marched out of the state unless they were being abducted by UFOs that left only one other option.
0: Can I tell you, I was about to be like, so you you're telling me they were not abducted by aliens. So that's so funny that you put that in there (laughs) because I was totally going to make a joke about it.
3: In 1890, the vigilantes waited in the shadows and watched the train pull into the station. Three cowboys yipped and hollered as they loaded the herd into boxcars. As the vigilantes began to move in, they recognized the men. Bill Hannon, the foreman, better known as Cheyenne Bill, led the party followed close behind by a man named John Andrews, better known as Dutch John, then finally bringing up the rear, L.S. Herbert, known locally as Tex.
0: So we've got the Netherlands, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Texas all represented in this trio. That's fascinating.
3: You don't have to be a detective to guess where Cheyenne Bill is from. (laughs) Yeah. Rand came out of hiding and pretended to be one of the workers on the train. He began to help the three cowboys load the cattle, but of course, Rand carried alternative motives. As he moved the cows up the ramp, he checked the brands. By his count, he recognized 46 cows wearing stolen brands. This was all the proof they needed. The rustlers were caught red-handed. Rand gave a signal to Burke, and the other cattlemen stepped in to make a citizen's arrest. Dutch John and Tex went without a fight, but Cheyenne Bill slipped away into the night, vanishing before anyone could stop him. With two of the rustlers in custody, the men began to go through the rest of the cattle, finding another 100 stolen
2: cows.
3: Now, three cow punchers, no matter their skill or strategy, could pull off a smuggling operation this size. Others needed to be involved. They suspected these men stole cattle from all across southern Idaho and shipped them to Seattle, Washington, to Frey and company to be butchered. Law enforcement sent out arrest warrants for Frey, along with Matt Watts, a rancher suspected of being involved. Immediate suspicion fell on the bosses of these cowboys, all of whom were prominent businessmen. Cheyenne Bill worked for the War Bonnet Cattle Company. Dutch John and Tex both reported to H.B. Hake, the cattle king of Idaho. In total, 12 men were accused of having involvement in the operation. By that summer, Cheyenne Bill still managed to elude his pursuers. Meanwhile, Dutch John, Tex Frey, and Matt Watt went on trial for over 100 stolen cattle. 45-year-old Dutch John in particular struggled to control his fury, claiming he knew enough information to damage the lives of all the cattlemen in the area as well as the prosecuting attorney. He demanded he be tried first, and if the state did not acquit him of all All charges, he threatened to quote,
1: Told all I know about that business.
3: The court did in fact try Dutch John first, who they acquitted. Okay. The court found Tex and the rest of the accused innocent as well. All the cattle rustlers, despite being caught pretty red-handed, with over 100 stolen cattle, Walked away that day with zero charges. Sure. The small town farmers and ranchers in the community were outraged. Blackfoot Times showed no restraint in their response. Quote, it is given to reason that cattle thieves escape punishment in Idaho because the state constitution holds that no unusual punishment shall be inflicted for the perpetration of crime. Cattle thieves have gone unpunished so long that punishment now would be unusual and therefore prohibited by the Constitution. Stop. So much sass. Okay. <laughs> it is is impossible to say why they were acquitted possibly the vigilante aspect contributed to the outcome though compared to the kettle thieves lynchings occurring in 1891 in montana and south dakota the actions of these small ranchers in idaho seemed pretty tame in comparison mm-hmm. it's hard not to wonder if dutch john's words did in fact influence the astounding outcome dutch john never named names or told what he knew but the question remained of whether he could keep quiet how long would he keep these secrets to himself. I've no doubt all of these thoughts and possibilities ran through Deputy Green's head as he and Bill Ayers looked at Dutch John's body that November. Whatever secrets Dutch John knew he no longer could tell. Dutch John's lips were silenced forever. The discovery of Dutch John's body left Sheriff C.M. Smith with a long list of things to do. Smith must have known right off the bat the seriousness of this discovery and the possible implications it might have on prominent community members. The sheriff called in Lt. Mitchell, the coroner of Idaho Falls, to perform a medical examination. He then swore out a warrant for the arrest of text. Last of all, now sobered up, William Williams, Needed to give him a straight story and a better explanation of how he knew exactly where to find that body. William, though probably experiencing a mean hangover, cooperated willingly and seemed to be just grateful to get the whole ordeal off his chest. This is the story he confessed to the authorities. That October, William Williams got the word that B.F. Hake needed help rounding up some lost cattle. William, who needed the work, happily agreed, but once he met with Hake in person, he discovered that the job was a little more different than the one that had been advertised. Hake needed a dead body identified. Tex confessed to Hake that he killed Dutch John. Apparently, Hake either did not believe Tex or wanted a clear identification of who Tex killed. Worried for his own personal safety and not knowing who he trusted enough to identify the body, Hake asked his nephew, Reed Hake, to go and bring back clothing belonging to the dead man. According to William, Hake hired him to be a bodyguard for his nephew. Despite this sudden change of duties, William agreed. The three men rode to the area around Market Lake, near modern-day Roberts and Manan, Idaho. This is where Hake's cattle grazed during the summer months. The trio did not talk much during their three-day trip, stopping only occasionally with Tex cooking all of their meals. They spent the first night at Andrew Smith's ranch, allowing traveling cowboys to hold over for a night as common courtesy done by most ranchers. Smith did not even ask the purpose of their journey on day two they arrived at a forlorn part of the road difficult to distinguish from any of the other sagebrush country if you've ever spent any time in this part of idaho the word that might immediately come to mind is lonely The windswept valley is a lonely country. Tex recognized an old log on the side of the road. He pulled out John's coat and hat from underneath it. As they walked through the field, William started to get nervous. What if Tex brought them there to kill them? What if Tex had accomplices hiding in the wilderness around them? William drew his gun. Reed and Tex, both of whom were calm, did not react to the drawn revolver and carried on with the task at hand. A little ways away, they found Dutch John lying face down on the ground. The body wore a shirt, vest, gray pants, suspenders, boots, gloves, and tied around the throat a black handkerchief. While the coyotes had already paid a visit, the body at this point remained considerably fresher than it would when William showed it to the authorities a few weeks later. The men rolled over the body. Along with the gray hat and coat, they took the black leather gloves and the black bandana to show hey. William observed two bolt wounds in Dutch John, one in the side and one through the back. If the ride there had been quiet, it did did not compare to the silence of the ride home. William asked Tex why he'd killed John. According to William, quote, He said, Hake said he would never see him want for anything if he'd done that. Once they returned, Hake, now satisfied, hid the dead man's clothes in the store at Reed's suggestion. Once the business concluded, Hake walked William out, thanked him for helping him. However, he told William it would be best if he just let the matter go and not speak of it to anyone, saying, quote, He was
1: an outlaw and nobody would bother with it.
3: Then, to thank him for his troubles, he gave William a $10 credit at his store, a modern equivalent, about $330, and sent him on his way. After hearing all of this, the sheriff added Hake and Reed to the list of arrests. Meanwhile, Hake, learning of William's lack of discretion, sent one of his cowboys, Will Marler, to tell William to, quote, Keep your mouth shut until you've seen him. Alas, Hake sent this message too late. The authorities were already on their way. On November 8th, after taking Reed and Hake into custody, law enforcement found the dead man's clothes in the store, verifying William's story. But they did not find text. Tex no longer resided in the area. After the identification of Dutch John, Hake felt it best to get his employee out of town for a bit and sent him to work at his ranch in Soda Springs for his foreman, Jarvis. Hake and Reed's preliminary trials attracted much scandal and a huge audience, all desperate to get any information they could. There were even whispers that Cheyenne Bill attended the event in a disguise.
0: I don't know how closely you follow, like, the British royals or whatever, but there's that hilarious thing that went around where it's just some old british dude and everyone was like is this Meghan markle in disguise have you seen that it's no. so funny it just reminded me of like oh he would show up in a disguise <laughs>
3: for some reason i imagine like a big fake mustache
0: that's, yeah well that's actually the, the british guy that's like exactly what he looked like and everyone was like Meghan markle and so they had to like publish articles that like this is not Meghan markle in disguise this is a real man
3: well if he was there with a big fake mustache he slipped out before he could be apprehended jim smith accompanied by a posse of men rode north of Jarvis's ranch to the grazing land where the cowboys moved the cattle for the winter. About nine o'clock that morning, the party found Tex. Jim and the rest of his men drew guns on him. They told Tex they were placing him under arrest. And he responded, For what murder? Tex acted genuinely surprised by this and did not resist arrest. He did not say a word for their long ride back to Blackfoot. The trial created a massive sensation for East Idaho. Hake's wife testified on the stand that she had listened on her husband's request to his private conversation with Tex, testifying that Tex did tell Hake he killed Dutch John. Bursting into tears, she could not explain why her husband asked her to eavesdrop. In many ways, the focus of the scandal lay less on Tex's guilt and more on the involvement of outside parties. Did Hake or someone else hire Tex to act as a professional? assassin. The Salt Lake Tribune summed up the public's general consensus by saying, There is much at stake for certain individuals, and their money is the only thing that can save them. Hake and Reed kept cool while under cross-investigation, admitting they knew of the murder of Dutch John, but did not report it to the authorities due to ignorance, saying they dismissed it as a serious enough event to involve authorities in, acting as if whatever dispute fell between these two cowpokes out on the range, they found a way to settle it permanently. Tough Tex, as he was referred to by newspapers, shared his version of events. While plausible, it caused skepticism in the public and led to even more questions. This is Texas' story. The two of them were driving the cattle north for the winter. They fought over what to do with Hake. Dutch John wanted their boss eliminated. In fact, he went as far as threatening to kill Hake, as well as a man named Wooly and W.M. Burke. Tex, however, remained loyal and outraged that John even suggested such a thing. This caused bitter tension between them the entire ride back. They dismounted as they came to that desolate clearing, and Dutch John casually remarked,
1: Wouldn't this be a good place to catch old hate?
3: Tex furiously spat, you Son of a bitch! Dutch John went for his gun. Tex told him. <laughs> you son of a bitch, you better
2: take that glove off first.
1: I don't have to, you son of a bitch.
3: John's revolver barely cleared leather when Tex's gun flashed out. The shot rang out and Dutch John went down. As he hit the ground, his own gun discharged into his side. Oh. Tex immediately told Hake what had happened after he arrived back with the cattle. A conversation his wife apparently listened into. If
0: my husband was being spoken to, I 100% would listen.
3: It does raise the question of why did Hake ask his wife to listen to his conversation with Tex? And did he know what Tex was going to tell him? But even so, why would he do that? You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I wonder if he had some sort of like talk with her beforehand and like she had some sort of story and he was like, okay, well then listen and see what he says and like let me know how this compares. That's interesting, yeah.
3: The coroner's concluded... John Andrew's death resulted from a clear and deliberate murder. Although his examination also showed a bolt shot through the heart caused John's death, but unlike William's conclusion that Tex shot Dutch John in the back, the report seemed to suggest the bolt entered through John's chest. The state of decomposition likely contributed to the dispute. However, the distinction of being shot through the chest as opposed to the back is probably what saved Tex from being convicted of first-degree murder. At the end of the day, there were no witnesses, only a body eaten by coyotes, a tight-lipped cowboy, and the largest cattle boss of Idaho with the dead man's clothes. The state found Tex guilty of murder in the second degree and sentenced him to 35 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Do you have any guesses on the convictions of Hake and his nephew Reed?
0: <laughs> I have no idea.
3: Acquitted on all turns. Sure, that makes sense. While many felt their role in John's murder nothing less than explicit, the court did not agree. Conspiracies immediately began to grow, not just around Hake, but around the other two cattle king that the public suspected Tex of being careful not to name. Naming only the one whose involvement the public already knew about. This is also where we first see speculation on Tex's mental capacity. Papers described him as slow and indicating his mental vulnerability likely led him to being talked into committing the crime. Here is the Idaho statesman's thoughts on the verdict. Public opinion is pretty well divided on the case, and many are disappointed because Tex did not break down and tell who hired him to kill Andrews, as it is freely claimed someone did. It is further claimed that there were two associates, but J. H. Hawley, prosecuting attorney, could not pump the information out of the defendants. These accessories were rumored to have helped, but little evidence could support this theory, other than the gunshot was. One through the front or back, depending on who you believe, and the second shot through the side. In an unrelated side note, the prosecuting attorney were C.S. Winters and J.H. Hawley. Hawley, who later became the mayor of Boise and the ninth governor of Idaho, has many connections to the prison. Hawley convicted Len Douglas, who I did my live episode on at Tree Treefort. He also worked as the prosecuting attorney for the Harry Orchard and Big Bill Haywood case, as well as helping Diamond Phil Jack get off death row, which Anthony talks about in episode 23 of season three of this podcast. The Ketchum Keystone shared their blunt response. A man was shot in the back and killed. The shooter convicted of murder in the second degree. Instigators and prosecutors of this dastardly deed are free men. The murderer has refused to peach and justice is satisfied. Despite the controversies and conspiracies, the court's conviction remained. On January 23, 1892, the penitentiary received O.S. Herbert, better known as Tex. Tex, at 25 years old, weighed 146 pounds and stood 5 feet 9 and a quarter inches tall. His complexion was light, his hair brown, his eyes were gray. The prison noted that he stoops, his little fingers were crooked, scars on his face, wore a size 8 boot, a light mustache. When brought into the prison, he entered with $1.85 in his possession, which rests somewhere around $60 in modern currency. When Sheriff Smith dropped Tex off, the two were seen laughing and joking with one another before having a rather friendly goodbye. Tex showed good behavior in the Bingham Jail and his time in the prison followed this pattern as Tex slowly earned the respect of the guards. Tex became one of the cooks. He went from cooking beans for his trail mates over a campfire to cooking for the entire prison population. Perhaps his impromptu trail cooking skills came in handy since he cooked prior to the construction of the dining hall. Tex served in this position for 19 months.
0: I bet his experience, like as a cowboy, was very helpful in that regard because you know, you're just out there on the range you gotta make food, and so I bet his food was good, actually.
3: During his time in prison, Tex wrote and received just a tremendous amount of mail, which is instrumental in understanding what really happened, but it also only adds to the confusion. One thing that I found interesting were all the name similarities and possible family connections. For example, the Livestock Commissioner of Nebraska, J. A. Hake, is clearly a close friend of Tex and writes to him frequently. Is there a familiar connection between between H.B. Hake and J.A. Hake, it could explain why H.B. Hake hired Tex in the first place, as well as why the Livestock Commission in Idaho did not push harder for their conviction on Tex during the cattle rustling charges early in 1891. Matt Jarvis from Nebraska writes to the warden on Tex's behalf. Again, perhaps a coincidence or maybe even another family connection to Jarvis of Soda Springs Tex worked for. Now, moving into the realm of the more strange, J.H. Hawley acted as One of the prosecuting attorneys for the case. But Tex's personal lawyer, who saw to all of his affairs well at the prison, is named E.R. Hawley. Hmm. From what I could find, no family connections that I could Hmm. see, but I don't know. Now, these connections seem to be a little more on the innocent side but Tex carried out other correspondence that seemed a little more suspicious. Many individuals fought long and hard for Tex's release. C.S. Winters, L.T. Mitchells, and Charles Arney. If those names sound familiar to you, they should. Mm -hmm. C.S. Winters acted as one of the prosecuting attorneys on Tex's case. But hey, maybe we need to give him the benefit of the doubt. This would not be the first time in history a prosecuting attorney has felt guilt and has worked to overturn a sentence on a man they convicted. L.T. Mitchell, though, acted as the medical examiner for the case. His autopsy was crucial to helping Tex avoid a conviction of first degree murder and possibly the death penalty. Again, perhaps guilt, but it seems odd the letters between the two are so friendly. Not to mention all of the work Mitchell put into getting petitions signed for Tex's release. Charles Arney should be recognizable to fans of the show for other reasons. Charles Arney acted as the warden during the Josie Kensler pregnancy scandal talked about in season 1 episode two, as well as the labor scandal talked about in the Norwood episode. Season 8, episode 75. Arnie fought on Texas' behalf before he became warden, while still acting as the Idaho superintendent and later the probate judge. Normally, having a warden or an individual who would soon become a warden testify to your good character speaks very highly of you. But Arnie, who resigned in disgrace due to the improper use of prison labor, is another matter. Arnie's reputation became tainted with corruption. There were other strange discrepancies in the case. For example, texts claim Dutch John planned to kill the cattle kings who crossed him, and he listed Hake, Wooly, and W.M. Burke. We know about Hake's involvement. Woolly is a little less clear and perhaps is acting as a nickname for one of the other more prominent ranchers in the area, but we do know W.M. Burke. Burke helped get the men arrested on the cattle theft charges with the other vigilantes at the beginning of the story. Did Dutch John feel angry that Burke caught him, or did John feel that Burke Double-crossed them. If so, it raises the question: Did Burke participate in the kettle stealing operation and then helped bring in the lower-ranking rustlers? If so, it gave Burke motivation to want John silenced permanently. Now there were a few papers that claimed someone else committed the murder and/or used associates who helped him with it, but there are no clear indications of who those two accomplices were. If reports about the disguised Cheyenne Bill still being in the area are true, then he possibly could have helped, but wanted all across the state, it seemed unlikely he came back to carry out a hit that Tex could have easily done himself. Another possible explanation is given by Nebraska's J.A. Hake, who wrote to Tex blaming the trouble he found himself in on two cowboys named Frank and Fred. These two names do not correspond with any other rustlers or cowboys I could find record of, but it does seem to support the idea that Tex may have not worked alone. Now, many of the letters to the war Jordan and Parole Board emphasize how slow-minded Tex is. The newspapers also went to great lengths to talk about his supposed mental disabilities. I thought it might help us understand Tex a little bit to hear some of his writing, to hear his real voice.
2: April 23 1897 to the on board of pardons Boise City please find enclosed three letters one of which is from mr ER Holly he spoke of a horse deal that was new to me hake never had any authority to do anything with my horse and never asked to help me so it was a scheme of some kind as Jarvis told me that BF Hake awarded my attorney I wrote to Jarvis a statement but perhaps he will be like Mr Holly will not like to put it in writing Mr Hawley told me just what I told you he did and should you see him I believe that he will tell you the same another is a letter from BF Hake Hake's nephew G. Reed Hake. When I answered this letter a long time ago, I told him just as I told you gentlemen when here. His letter will convince you that what kind of man B.F. Hake is. Mr. D.S. Cole is that man I bought the lot of for my mother. He is dead now. I only send this letter to whom that he thought I was all right. I will also enclose one written by one party to the man that has my horse, to whom the party did buy the horse from my attorney. Wishing you success in a thorough investigation, I remain yours, O.S. Herbert. Hmm.
3: Now, it is entirely possible that another more literate incarcerated individual wrote this on Tex's behalf. However, based on the amount of letters Tex sent, the span of years he sent them, and the fact they contained the same handwriting, I highly suspect Tex did in fact write this. He corresponded with a wide array of people, including seeing to the business on behalf of his widowed mother, who he sent regular money to before his incarceration, as well as attending to legal matters that influenced his case, especially compared to the almost illiterate scrawlings sent to Tex from other cowboys. In comparison, Tex is well-spoken and shows an above-average penmanship and literacy for the time period for cowpokes. This letter I just showed you in particular shows the growing strain between Tex and B.F. Hake, whose relationship is anyone's guess. William reported Hake's paranoia towards Tex. Tex, on the other hand, showed fierce loyalty to his boss. Others, including Reed, suggested a great friendship between the two of them. But it's clear that Tex possessed bitterness about how things turned out, and even anger that Hake claimed possession of his horse after his incarceration. Tex never claimed innocence, nor did he ever share details about what happened to the guards and residents at the penitentiary. But he did tell Warden Campbell that if he reviewed the actual notes of his court case as well as the evidence of the crime scene, it might help him have a greater understanding of what actually happened. Tex even reached out to Ralph T. Morgan to request access to the documents to share with Warden C.P. Campbell. Morgan reached back to Tex with some rather bad and strange news. He could not send the warden copies of those documents because they no longer existed. A mysterious fire started and burned down the county clerk's office. The fire claimed Texas court transcript, the sheriff's report, and of course, the autopsy of Dutch John. This unexplainable fire wiped out all hard evidence left over from the case.
0: Yeah, but do you think it was just his case? Or do you think that there was something larger going on? Like, no offense to this case. It just doesn't seem important enough to burn down a county courthouse for. But if what you're saying is that they are trying to cover up something bigger? Yeah,
3: I don't know. I don't know. But it turned out Tex did not need the evidence. During his time in prison, five petitions were written on his behalf, ranging from 17 signatures to 150. Some from Nebraska, some from Blackfoot. With the understanding that many of these names repeat on. various petitions, a total of 323 signatures advocate for Texas freedom. But Tex experienced more in prison than just a collection of pen pals advocating for his freedom. Samuel Hatton, number 128, one of the most notorious residents of the site, also served during this time. The state sentenced Hatton to 1 to 14 years for grand larceny for holding up a saloon in Alturas County. However, the authorities suspected Hatton as the prime suspect in two murders in the area. Described by the Spokane Review is, quote, One of the worst men ever confined to the Idaho penitentiary. Hatton's reputation seemed to intimidate those around him, and this was due in part to his size. Many reported his enormous stature and strength. While described by newspapers as 6'3", his actual prison battalion described him as just under 6 feet tall. Still, he is big. His size might have been exaggerated due to his continual use of violence and physical intimidation. He often attacked and beat guards and other residents of the penitentiary. At one point, he nearly beat a man to death with a horseshoe. For these frequent outbursts of violence, he often found himself confined in the dungeon of the 1890s cell house. In 1892, Hatton attacked a man in the barbershop, but guards stopped him before he could kill the man. Furious at the guards' intervention, apparently Hatton told one of the guards referred to as French that, quote,
0: I will slip up behind you someday
1: and stick a knife into you.
3: French took the threat seriously. Seriously. Despite specific rules disallowing guards to bring in weapons, French began to keep an eight-inch Bowie knife with him at all times. On December 16th, French went to bring Hatton his breakfast. The prison held Hatton in solitary confinement in a cell on the third floor of the 1890s cell house. Not an uncommon practice when all of the cages of the dungeon were full. French asked Tex, the cook, to accompany him. Together, the two of them walked up the stairs to the very top of the cell house and found Hatton in his cell on his bed writing a letter. Tex puts the food and coffee cup on the ground and slides it into Hatton's cell. French tells him to eat. Hatton refuses. French informs them that if he continues to refuse to eat, he will be put back on the bread and water diet. Hatton responds with a string of expletives aimed at the guard. So, they pick up the untouched breakfast and head down the stairs. But wait, where's the coffee mug? French turns around and sees that they left in Hatton's cell. French returns and makes the very questionable decision of opening the door and stepping in to retrieve the cup. Hatton leaps out of bed and attacks French. Before French can respond, Hatton pounds his fists into French's head. Together, the pair stumble out of the cell and slam against the railing overlooking the 30-foot drop to the bottom of the cell house. French yells out for help, but Tex freezes. Hatton grabs the guard and lifts him into the air. French cries out for help, his feet now dangling. He feels himself being thrown over the rail, but before he goes over, Tex grabs Hatton. Tex is smaller than Hatton, who has at least 30 pounds on the cowboy, but that does not Stop Tex from jumping on Hatton. Hatton drops the guard and the turns his fury on Tex. As they fight, Hatton gets a hold of Tex's parry knife he uses in the kitchen. Tex manages to pull free from Hatton and makes his retreat down the hall. Hatton takes a few steps after Tex and turns back to French, unsure of who he would rather kill. French, his knife unsheathed, solves the dilemma for him. French plunges the Bowie knife into Hatton's side, driving the blade nearly to his spine. Hatton screams out in agony. I've been cut. Hatton attempts to run, but goes down at the top of the stairs. There, he dies. The Ido statesman reports quote Blood was splattered on the walls at an interval where it had gushed from the wounded man's side as he ran along the corridors, while well, from the cell to the spot the convict lay in a pool of blood was a long streak of crimson. Yikes. The investigatory team declared French's actions justifiable homicide. It's clear French should not have had a knife, but it's also clear it was a kill or be killed moment. If you're interested in hearing Samuel Hatton's entire story, check out the stool pigeon Saturday with our incredible Suzanne in season six. While ridiculed by some for his momentary pause, it's clear that Texas action saved French's life in one of the most gruesome moments in the history of the old Idaho penitentiary. On January 7th, 1898, Tex received a pardon after six years in the Idaho penitentiary. Tex headed back home to his family in Nebraska. Here he soon met Jenny Male Neely. It must have been love at first sight because the pair married August 10th of that year, only seven months after his
2: release. Oh, look at that. That's cute.
3: I have a picture here that I'm showing Sky of the two of them. It looks perhaps like a wedding photo. Mm-hmm. They both look very nice, very Victorian in their dress grass
0: well they both seem like content yeah like because you know you look at these old photos sometimes and they're just like dead serious but they both of them have like a slight smile on their face they like seem genuinely happy so
3: for sure together they moved to iowa where jenny gave birth to their first son in 1900 two years later jenny gave birth to twin girls who both passed away the following year jenny died on september 3rd at only 26 years old that november of the same year on november 30th tex remarried married Stella May doll the rest of his life remains pretty mysterious he did not do anything newsworthy text did not have any more kids never committed another crime and never returned to Idaho on July 25th 1945 Tex passed away in Hastings Nebraska at the age of 79. Texts left behind a confusing legacy and an abundance of mystery, including a large collection of conspiracy theories. Newspapers claimed that the same parties that funded the prosecuting team also paid for the defense. They also claimed government corruption all the way through the jury, judges, warden, and livestock commissioners. Some of these theories were published in the Idaho Statesman, Blackfoot Times, and some of them are a bit of my own interpretation. But let's take a quick look at the different possibilities. Theory one, Tex acted as a hired assassin carrying out a hit on behalf of Hake and the other two cattle king of Idaho to silence Dutch John about the rustling operation. Okay. Theory two, Tex took the fall for whoever did kill John. Someone else committed the murder, whether that be the mysterious Fred and Frank, Cheyenne Bill, or even possibly B.F. Hake himself. Whether Tex acted as an accomplice or just an escape go, Tex agreed to confess and hide the real perpetrator. Three, the Idaho statesman suggested Dutch John and Tex both knew they needed to silence the other due to the incriminating information they knew about the smuggling operation. Each just bided their time, waiting for the right moment, and when they finally did draw their guns, Tex got the draw. Theory four, the fight that occurred between these two men had nothing to do with anyone else. The two fought, Hake handled the information of the slain poorly, and in doing so got him and his nephew arrested. Theory five, some combination of the first four theories. So Skye, what do you think happened?
0: Maybe I'm just like skeptical, but I feel like this feels a little bit like Occam's razor where like the most obvious, like the the answer is the most obvious answer just because if his mental capacity is as small as everyone is stating. And I guess though that does perhaps point to a possibility of like people taking advantage of him. But I don't know. I, I feel like it's the old West. It's cattle wrestling, which is fully illegal, of course. It to me just seems like it's something Maybe maybe what I'm thinking is maybe it's more like a combination of all of them. Maybe it's the historian in me which it's just like, eh, that's the simplest answer it seems like the most plausible to me.
3: Yeah. And with conspiracy theories, one thing you always have to consider is how many people have to be silenced in right. order to, for this to work. Right. The the Blackfoot Times was sure the government was involved in sure. the cover-up. And if the government was involved in the cover-up, like how many people are being silenced? Right. However, especially with the wealth of cattle ranchers during this time period, Mm -hmm. especially after the big die up we do see a lot of corruption right. among livestock commissioners in other states and so I don't know.
0: But like money so often means you get to openly get away with corruption. Like that's what we see so yeah. often is that yeah. <laughs> that these people are just like well I have more money than you so I get to do whatever I want.
3: Here's the weird thing about tax: From the time he goes on trial to the time he's pardoned they really play into this idea of, of he's mentally slow. Right. Before that time period it never gets brought up. The Seem to not suspect that And then of course after his release It's never mentioned again He writes a lot And of course writing isn't an exact reflection Of your mental capacity Especially some people can be more skilled in other areas And struggle in others But he handles the finances for his mother For his lawyer He's exchanging a lot of complicated mails He's requesting legal documentations From his lawyer Stuff to send to the warden See
0: but if that's the case Then that would seem that that is truly a defense strategy to get him off. yes so then the whole theory of like well the the prosecution paid for the defense he was like the fall guy then why would they use that
3: it's getting blown out of proportion by the newspapers yes But it does make you wonder, reading through all of Tex's personal writing, I did not feel like he was slow as they portrayed him to be. I think that was some sort of thing they're trying to lean into to get a softer punishment. He seemed to be pretty smart.
0: So interesting.
3: The truth is, we will never know. The only person who could have told kept his mouth shut. On his release, the Idaho statesman wrote this about Tex. Quote, he is reported to have said well in the penitentiary that he would rather remain there than tell all he knew about the matter.
0: What? But then that indicates he's in on it and he's not a fall guy.
3: Going back from earlier when Williams claimed that Tex was told by Hake he would never need anything again. That Hake would see to mm. all of the needs I mean, for and the rest I guess of his he, life.
0: I mean, he did have a good, what seems like a pretty good life after that. Yeah. Man, I don't know. That's weird.
3: Tex never told. The only others to know what actually happened was Dutch John and the Coyotes that fell
0: for your whole life.
3: I don't know. I guess it depends how much I'm being paid.
0: That's true. I guess if someone was taking care of you, I don't think I could. I'm such a blabbermouth. <laughs> I love, I love talking and spilling, <laughs> spilling tea. And that's a good historian should <laughs> yeah, be right. I know. I do uh, tell. I love being involved in other people's business uh, and telling other people's business. I don't know. That's so interesting. Well, very well done. Today I am talking about number two five two nine Cora Atkinson. But before we get started, we have a surprise. What? Anthony. snuck in in the interim and he is here to comment and we're so thrilled to have you yeah oh Oh my gosh how have you been
1: oh you know just hanging around i don't think yeah i was gonna say i don't think you
0: do anything no
1: just doing nothing it's (laughs) been nice it's been really good just been on vacation for months like
0: everyone's like we don't need Anthony around yeah, at all. No, we should just get rid of him it's completely. Been it's been really nice. No,
1: I'm sorry. I had a meeting, and then I show up, and then I realize it's canceled, so I rushed Ugh. back. I was literally outside the door here at the studio listening to Sam's part right. and laughing at parts. <laughs> and yeah, good just... work, by the way.
0: <laughs> Again, I do wish you had just knocked on the door. I'm sure it would have been fine. Well, <laughs> I
1: don't want to disrupt the flow. You guys are in it. I was like, that's what makes me so happy is that this continues to live yeah, on yeah. that like you guys are both such amazing storytellers oh, and yeah. i could just like be out there just like oh you know proud dad like <laughs> yay dad. things are going like these guys are
0: amazing yeah
1: it was uh, it's very cool well it it, so this
0: podcast would be nothing without you <laughs> so we're so glad to at least have you <laughs> oh, here for man. commentary every
3: episode you're on anthony the episode only gets
0: better it's oh true. wow it's true.
2: oh my god just because i <laughs> signed his paychecks you <laughs> know <just> little, <laughs> i mean
0: I'm not saying that's why (laughs) I'm excited to have you here, but I'm just, I don't know. I do need the paycheck. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here. I'm actually, I was looking, I was told Sam I was looking through this yesterday and I was like, this is actually so interesting. So sources today, her inmate vial, Ancestry.com records, Newspapers.com records, the Bureau and the Great Experiment, how prohibition fueled bootleggers, mobsters, and corruption from FBI.gov, changes in homicide and suicide rates during prohibition in the US, 1900 to 1950 from Statista.com. Cambridge Dictionary website, The Era of Gangster Films on American Experience on PBS, Filmsite.org, The 1930 MPPDA production code, From Bohemia to Czechia by Czech author Jury Schittler on Radio Prague International, and then just some quick Wikipedia um, mentions from Bohemia, Greater Moravia, Austria Hungary Compromise of 1867, Czech Republic, Bureau of Prohibition, and the movie Scarface from 1932. Nice. So we're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I'm <laughs> so. Excited. What? I know. Isn't it interesting?
1: Like international and prohibition. I right? know. That's all I kept hearing. I he was know. Like, what? There's, this is it's so exciting. All <laughs> crazy.
0: Okay. So Cora Atkinson was born Carlina Cora Horacek on May 4th, 1884 in McWilliams, Nebraska to Vinzel Horacek, who his anglicized name was James, and Francisca, who went by Franny Horacek. Now, both of her parents were Bohemians. And that doesn't mean what we think it mean or what we use it to mean today. It just means that her parents immigrated from Bohemia. Bohemia. Bohemia in 1882 through Ellis Island. Now so for those of you who don't know, Bohemia is currently the westernmost and largest historical region of the modern-day Czech Republic, and it passed through various stages of independence, monarchy, and empire in its long history. So I am not a European historian. There's so much history to know. So this is literally just like the quickest rundown I could get. Bohemia first was a duchy of Greater Moravia, the first major Slavic state in Central Europe in 870 AD. Then it was a kingdom in the Holy Roman Empire under the House of Luxembourg in 1310 before becoming part of the Habsburg monarchy in 1526. Bohemia and the modern day Czech Republic saw a lot of shifts in power throughout its history. It fought for independence from both the Holy Roman Empire and the Austrian Empire several times, roughly between 1500 and 1700. Then, after the defeat of Austria in the Austro-Prussian War in 1866, Hungarian politicians put together the Austro-Hungarian Compromise of 1867, whereby the Kingdom of Hungary was separate from and no longer subject to the Austrian Empire and together they established the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary because we hear about that, especially during kind of World War I and then it disappears after that. From that point forward, Bohemian and Czech nationalists tried unsuccessfully to make a tripart monarchy of Austria-Hungary Bohemia in 1871. And so from this point forward, Bohemia always has a political party trying to seek independence. And this is actually the state that Bohemia is in when Cora's parents immigrated to the U.S., that they're trying to get this to be a part of this larger empire but it just remains a region and finally after world war one bohemia became the core of the new country of czechoslovakia and remained in the czech republic after the dissolution of czechoslovakia which was also called the velvet divorce in 1993
1: the velvet Divorce. the velvet
0: divorce which is amazing that's an amazing name right and then this is an interesting little factoid in 2016 the czech government stated that it preferred that the country be known as czechia in english Um, this is a nod to 17th and 18th centuries when czechia was used to refer specific to the Czech lands, kind of separate from, like, the larger Bohemia. Since then, Czechia has been adopted by the European Union, NATO, the CIA, even Google Maps. Though, calling it the Czech Republic is still acceptable, but the government prefers that in, like, official things you call it Czechia. Kind of interesting. So this is the political situation that her parents are coming from. She obviously was raised as Bohemian, as Czech. Cora was the second of seven children. She had an older sister, Louisa, younger sisters Ellie, Matilde, and Mary, and Mabel. Now, there is some confusion on ancestry about Matilde and Mary. So when I click on their names in ancestry, for those of you who don't know, often when you search for a name and you find a document, it will then pull up a bunch of potentially related documents. And when I click on both Matilde and Mary, their names take me to records for someone named Marie M. Horacek, whose birth year listed is between the two listed birth years for these two sisters. So in the 1900 census. So it's, I, I don't know if maybe one of them passed a away and they got dates wrong. I don't really know what the situation is there. It's just weird that the birth year for this Marie was in between both of that. It just yeah it was weird. But then every, they all had a younger brother Charles. He was the only boy of the family. So her father worked as a farmer and the family moved from Nebraska to Colorado sometime between 1884 and 1888 and then to Utah by 1896. Uh, the 1900 census lists the large family living in Clear Lake, Utah along with two boarders who likely worked as farmhands. Her youth is fairly unclear. She could read and write so she probably to school for a little bit but her intake form doesn't specify for how long it also specifies that she could quote unquote talk bohemian which just means she could speak czech Um, She was raised as a Roman Catholic. And my initial thought was like, oh, that's not very surprising. But I learned that the Czech Republic actually has the third highest proportion of atheists in in Europe. And historian Richard Felix Starr stated, quote, the Czechs have been tolerant and even indifferent toward religion as a rule, end quote. Only about 11% of the current Czech population is Christian, um, with roughly 9% of that being Catholic. So it wasn't as common as I, I guess I expected it to be. When Kor was 18 years old on June 25th, 1902, she married frederick atkinson a farm laborer at white pine nevada the white pine news reported that they got married quote at the home of the bride's parents in snake valley white pine county end quote this indicates that the family moved to nevada and indeed the 1910 census lists both of her parents as living in nevada an interesting development though this was i thought this is so interesting it seems that her parents divorced between 1900 and 1910 and her mother remarried a man named william kicksmiller and william kicksmiller had been a border with the family in 1900 he was one of those borders. <laughs> she the mom too was 8 to 10 years older than William. So How old was the mom? She yeah. was a, she was, you know, a full decade older probably, which get a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and in around 1909, the Atkinson family so Cora and her husband moved to Rock Creek, Idaho in Twin Falls County. In the 1910 census, she had stated she had given birth to one living child while married to Atkinson, but the census doesn't list that child, and it's also odd because I found Idaho birth records that she gave birth Birth on February 11th, 1911, gave birth to a baby boy. This child is eventually listed, so I thought maybe, you know, she had given birth and then it had died, but again, it said, you know, number of children living, and she said one, but the son, the only son that I know of, was not born until 1911. So it is possible that maybe the census takers came after he was born because he was born in February 1911, so maybe it took him a little bit to like get to them out in Rock Creek. I'm not really sure what the situation is there, but as far as I know, she she only had this one son. The other confusing thing is that the birth records list a completely different man as the baby's father. It's not Fred Atkinson. The son, his name was Jewel Zach Curtis, and the man listed as the father is Zach Jewel Curtis. This is very confusing. So we've got Jewel and Zach. These are the two main names. So the son is Jewel. The husband is Zach, but her obituary lists her husband also as Jewel. So there's some confusion as to the names, but I'm certain that Jewel is the son. Zach is the father slash potential husband. Over the next several years, she is associated with Zach Curtis. So it's possible that they got married by the time their son was born, but I have no idea when or if slash when she got divorced from Frederick Atkinson. I'm not even fully sure if Zach and Cora married. I couldn't find an official record. They just had the son together and then they were associated with each other over the next several years. Was
1: he a boarder as well? Uh, he was not a border. Oh, okay. No, he was
0: not. <laughs> Zach Jewel Curtis was really Jewel Roberts, a farmer born in Oklahoma in 1880. 1888. What? Yeah. So if I found the correct person, Jewel was arrested and found guilty on a prohibition charge and of burglary in Oklahoma in 1908. So he did have a criminal
1: past before he met Cora. Prohibition starts in Oklahoma. What year? Because that's interesting. Yeah. 1908. 1908.
0: It could have also been a county level prohibition.
1: Okay. Which, with you know the Native American land Mm -hmm. there, I could Mm -hmm. see that that's probably legislated pretty heavily. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. Okay.
0: In February 1809, the Claremore Messenger from Claremore, Oklahoma, reported that Jewel Roberts had escaped from the county jail and had disappeared from the area. Four years later, on February 4th, 1913, the Idaho Daily Statesman reported that Jewel Roberts, under the name Zach Curtis, had been extradited back to Oklahoma. And by the time he had been arrested, he had established himself as such a respectable member of the community that about 30 businessmen of Twin Falls vouched for his reputation, sending a quote-unquote certificate of good character to try to absolve him of these charges in Oklahoma. However, a group of other farmers and ranchers around the same area that Zach had been working with disputed this certificate saying, quote, any endorsement of his character is not in line with his known reputation, end quote. But then there were other ranchers who were, quote, Willing to vouch for his standing in every way. There is some, he probably is like not the coolest dude, maybe to his neighbors, mm-hmm. but maybe in town, like in businesses and stuff, he puts on a face. I don't know. Yeah. I, I find that so interesting that it's not just like the businessmen and the farmers. It's like there's businessmen and the farmers, but then some other farmers are like, no, he's a cool guy.
1: I don't know. And he's just like a general laborer. Yeah, he's a farmer. Yeah. And, okay. Complicated reputation. Yeah. 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 And kind of a bad boy, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <You> know, escaping <laughs> yeah. from jail. And...
0: I know. Escaping from jail for years. So he just disappeared years. so yeah. he, he pretty much came from Oklahoma to to Twin Falls so as far as I can ascertain Zach Zach slash Jewel was returned to Oklahoma to complete his sentence of 30 days in the county jail that was all he had to serve but wow. he escaped and <laughs> do your time <laughs> yeah seriously <laughs> so it's unclear what Cora was up to in the years that Zach was back in Oklahoma but he was back in Idaho by late 1914 and he was probably really upset that his fellow farmers didn't stand up for him basically sending him back to jail so the Twin Twin Falls Times reported on January 19th, 1915, that Zack had been arrested for, quote, killing two head of cattle, not his own, end quote, after the hide of at least one steer. And there are two articles that say two different things. So at least one may have been more than one. And these hides of the steers belonged to a Mr. Larson of Rock Creek. The same article said that, quote, Curtis is now in this city suffering from an attack of pneumonia for fear that he will attempt to escape. A guard is watching him night and day, end quote. What is a little bit unclear is how Cora got involved because she's not mentioned in this original article. She's not even mentioned as part of the crime at all until March 9th. So almost two months after this is first reported is the first time she is mentioned as being associated with it. Even then, all that was said in the Twin Falls Times when she was mentioned was that she was on trial with Zach. There's no explanation as to like how she was involved, what her role was in this. So the two of them, their trial began on Monday, March 6th and took two days. The jury was given the case at about noon on Wednesday and returned their verdict on Thursday. Both. Both Zach and Cora were found guilty of grand larceny. And two days later, they were sentenced to from one to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. However, a stay of execution or, you know, stay of, of sentencing was granted by the court as their lawyers filed a motion for a new trial. And I don't know the reasons for this motion. Both Zach and Cora were released on bonds, quote, pending the determination of their appeal to the Supreme Court, end quote. They remained out on bail until April 1917. So this is two years later, a year and a half after their motion had been filed. And in April, their bond expired. I don't know if that's the right term because on April 11th, they, quote, were handed over to authorities by their bondsman and placed in jail until they furnish new bail or until their case is decided, end quote. And I've never heard of that. So I guess it could have been revoked if they had done something that caused that bail to get revoked, but it doesn't make any mention of that. So there's a lot of like little pieces that are missing that would help really round out this story, but we just don't have them. They were held in the Twin Falls County Jail until June 20. 28th 1917 when the Idaho Supreme Court affirmed the duo's conviction so finally Cora Atkinson and Zach Curtis entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on July 6th 1917. Zach he stole two head of cattle not his own of at least one steer was found with like a different brand at least Zach was caught again I don't know how Cora was involved it, to be honest it doesn't really seem like she She's was involved chomping but chomping
3: on upstate yeah right She
0: in the middle of cutting it like
3: uh, we're, we're keeping the kettle rustling yeah lots of cattle today. I mean, but that
0: this is Idaho, right? Rural yeah, Idaho. So sure there's not. lots of cattle. Especially in the Twin Falls area. If you drive through Twin or past Twin even on the highway, it just smells like cows. Yeah. A little dairy area. Love Twin Falls. We love Twin. Twin's <laughs> yeah. a good place. Okay, so in Rock Creek. <laughs> yeah. I like it as long as you don't get caught committing crimes there. Uh, <laughs> so her intake form, her age when she was received, she was thirty, born in Nebraska, legitimate occupation housekeeper, height five six and a half inches, complexion dark, weight. 240 color of hair dark brown color of eyes brown she was married with one child both of her parents were living she left her parents home when she was 18 she had religious instruction and attended Sunday school as we know in the Roman Catholic Church was not a member of any church at that time can read and write can talk bohemian she was a moderate drinker particularly of beer it notes just beer so she must not have Hmm. been a liquor drinker no former imprisonment the name and address of the nearest relative is Mrs. Eugene Shelley from Twin Falls peculiarity in build and feature. It's listed as stout. Um, she's just kind of a stout woman. Condition of teeth good. Two lower and two upper gold teeth. Size of boot worn seven and a half. Parents born in Bohemia. Port of entry do not know and has lived in Idaho for nine years. Her batillion has more notations than I expected. She had an appendectomy scar in her abdomen, a large scar in her left thigh, scar from a knife point just above her right breast, two scars from wire cuts just below the bend of her right elbow, a mole on the right side of her face, and finally, a notation that I've never seen before, quote, numerous deep seams on lower part of abdomen from carrying children,
1: end quote. Oh like stretch marks. Yeah, probably. I was like either
0: stretch marks or she just had like some folds in the skin yeah. of her belly from childbirth. So yeah, it's interesting. I've never seen that on a on a Britillion before.
3: Sounds like a tough farm woman. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. She's For out sure. there farming outside and you know wire cuts probably from wire fences and yeah, stuff like yeah. that, you know, so yeah, the, the knife, the, cuts yeah, the knife point oh. is kind of scary. I don't know what that's from. So as is often the case, we don't really know that much about her time in prison, but that's also possibly because her time in prison is incredibly short. In a letter from November second. 1917 from an unnamed parole officer to Governor Moses Alexander which was requested by the governor says quote I have interviewed Mrs. Atkinson and fully explained to her the conditions under which she might be reprieved. She promises that in the event she shall receive clemency from your hands that she will go home take care of her boy and endeavor to the utmost to her ability to make good. The warden informs me that she has some $1,300 on deposit at the prison and in Twin Falls and thus is amply able to take care of herself and the boy end quote. So I don't know if you looked if you cheated. and Okay great um how much in 1917 do you think $1,300 is worth today $6,973.15
1: okay Okay. I'm I'm guessing it's gonna be more
3: than that I'm okay let's go like 80,000
0: okay so both of you were off it's about 30,554 which that's actually I, yeah. I, I don't even make that much in a year as a graduate student. And she just had that on the wow. book. So wow. I'm, like, very interested Jeez. to know, like, no. maybe what... How she got all that money. Maybe... I don't know. It's
3: good nest egg.
0: Yeah, seriously. Yeah.
1: Maybe that's why she was a little villainized in the community. Mm-hmm. She's just, yeah. like, <laughs> just not from around here. Yeah, she's
0: wealthy. We but don't like her. Wealthy. Yeah, yeah I don't some, know. They've
1: got something going on. Because like it that's doesn't like cool. it's not
0: like Zach would have been providing for her. So yeah. unless maybe her first husband had a lot of money. I'm not really sure where all that money comes from because her her parents are just farmers, which you can you know make a living, but I don't think you can make just thirty thousand to have in savings.
1: Is it literally that's like the cash, or is it counting her property? Um, it says
0: thirteen hundred on deposit at the prison and in Twin Falls, so it must be both. Yeah. So yeah. So a week later, Governor Alexander signed a respite for Cora to return to Twin Falls and take care of her son. Effective immediately, she was released that very day. According to the Idaho Statesman on November 12th, this respite came as a surprise to Warden F.E. Decay, who said he hadn't known that the governor was thinking about this, saying he had received the respite quite out of the blue and he had no choice but to release her. Quote, the warden admitted that a reprieve is unusual in this case, and he said he knew of no reason why one was issued in this case, end quote. And even Cora didn't really have any idea what this reprieve was for either, but she was grateful for it. She was met at the train station by a newspaper reporter who quoted her as saying, I don't know why I was let out. I was told some time ago that I'd be freed on November 10th and they let me go. No, I'm not pardoned and I'm not paroled and I was not told to report to anybody. I'm out and I'm going to stay out and I won't talk about it or say anything that might get me back in there, end quote. Wow. Yeah, isn't that like a powerful statement? Yeah. I love that from her. But it is odd that she just was like, I don't know, they just let me out. I don't know why.
1: How much money did she have after that? Right.
0: <laughs> so when reporters asked Governor Alexander about it, he said he reprieved her because of her six-year-old son. But this is interesting because she was serving with other women who had children. And of course, dozens of women came into the penitentiary that already had children. And so I don't know why Cora in particular was chosen to receive a respite for this reason. Yeah. Governor Alexander said he didn't parole her. So basically, it sounds like if she had served her minimum sentence, he would have just paroled her. But because she had not yet served her minimum sentence, that's why he didn't parole her and gave her a respite. Zach, however, remained in the penitentiary until March 1st, 1919. Cora was fully pardoned in January 1918. So I I do wonder if maybe that's the situation as both of the son's parents were in prison, but her family was in the area. You know, of course, there's the children's home. So it just is so odd to me why she in particular got let out. Yeah. I don't know
3: especially since we had women with
1: younger children yeah. coming in yeah. how, how many women were in there at, at the um, time because this is this is this prior is, to the the dorm that we have now yes 14 this 14 is style. this
0: is 19 yeah 1917 so not a ton of women probably probably five at most I would bet there is potentially a marriage in September 1925 it's a marriage record from Elko Nevada because remember her family's from Nevada to a man named H.L. Crowell and I think H.L. is Henry Lee Crowell born in New Mexico who eventually Spent the rest of his life in Twin Falls, but this marriage record is the only one I could find definitively linking these two together. So I don't want to say for sure that they were married, but there is that kind of interesting record. So Cora did as she told the reporter she would do. She returned to Twin Falls to live with her young son, and she never did anything or said anything to get her back in the penitentiary. The 1920 census finds them living with her father, James, who was working as a shepherd to support uh, Cora and Jewel. Her last name on the census is listed as Crowell, which, as we know, is HL's last name, but HL whereabouts are unknown. This census also lists her marital status as divorce, but I'm not clear if this divorce applied to Zach or to HL. And again, I wonder if her and Zach were ever actually married. After his release from prison, Zach moved back east, settling in Kentucky for the rest of his life. So that's the last that we hear from him. Then on November 25th, 1921, in Vale, Oregon, Cora married Eugene Shelley. Now, if that name seems familiar, it's because that is the name and address of her nearest relative, Cora listed Mrs. Eugene Shelley. And Zach also listed her as the nearest relative. Now, Mrs. Eugene Shelley is Emma Shelley. She was not related to Cora or Zach as far as I could tell. I'm thinking they probably were friends because Eugene was also in the sheep herding business like Cora's father. So I'm wondering if the families met and kind of associated with each other and the couples may have gotten to be good friends. Emma had married Eugene in 1915, but sadly, Emma had passed away from complications from streptococcus in April 1920. Eugene and Cora lived in Twin Falls during their marriage. But things start to go wrong for Cora in 1927. According to the Times News from July 18th, 1927, Cora was arrested and pleaded guilty to illegal possession of liquor. Apparently, Cora and some friends were having a party at her home at 435 2nd Avenue East. R.E. Layton raided the party. And of course, 1927 is in the middle of Prohibition. So oh, don't mind me if I go down a quick Prohibition rabbit hole from 1927. Let's do it. Right? Yeah. So it's not, it really is not very long. I just found this interesting because I'm an American historian. So by 1927, and prohibition had been in effect for about seven years. In 1919, the 18th Amendment had been ratified, and the Volstead Act, which legislated how the 18th Amendment would be enforced, was passed in 1919, and enforcement began the next year in 1920. Believe it or not, the enforcement of new prohibition laws fell under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the IRS's predecessor. And this is probably because money earned from a sale of liquor automatically means a violation of taxable income, would be my best guess. And they created a prohibition unit of the Bureau. of Internal Revenue. When Prohibition Unit officers were stretched thin, they were supported by the Bureau of Investigation, the FBI's predecessor. So the BOI, which is ironically also the Boise Airport-like signal, every time I see it, I'm like, Boise Airport? So the Bureau of Investigation had experience in investigating certain alcohol-related crimes starting during World War I. BOI investigators were central to the enforcement of prohibition laws. In the first six months of prohibition, BOI agents investigated violations of prohibition laws that led to the arrest of 269 people. And another 334 possible violators to the Bureau of Internal Revenue for further investigation. But increased enforcement of prohibition also meant increased crime rates, which I think we all know very well. Between 1920 and 1927, the homicide rate had increased from 6.8% to 8.4%. So roughly from 7,300 homicides throughout the United States to 10,000 out of roughly 106 million people, which seems like not very much, but when you think about the fact that 10,000 people were killed by other people, it's a lot of people. It's often tied to the, this. So this crime, uh, this homicide rate is often tied to the rise in gangster activity Mess gangsters frequently trafficked in illegal liquor. In 1927, the Prohibition Unit of the BIR became an independent entity within the Department of the Treasury, and the name was changed from the Prohibition Unit to the Bureau of Prohibition. The Bureau of Prohibition was transferred to the Department of Justice in 1930 before it was absorbed into the FBI in 1933. Soon after its absorption into the FBI, the 18th Amendment was repealed, and the 21st amendment is the only amendment in our constitution that repeals another amendment and so the only federal laws now governing alcoholic beverages were the taxation of them so the bureau was transferred back to the department of the treasury and renamed the alcohol tax unit i also learned in this little rabbit hole that a prohibition agent was colloquially known as a pro in 1927 in idaho one of those unofficial pro was twin fall police chief r.e layton when he raided the home of cora shelley and destroyed quote innumerable bottles of beer and strong liquor end quote He also seized, quote, some of the apparatus, end quote, they used in the illicit liquor trade, which would seem to indicate that Cora was making it herself, but they are not completely clear on that. Upon her arrest, she was fined $200 and sentenced to 30 days in the county jail. If she couldn't pay the fine, she could serve time for the fine at a rate of $2 a day, which, if she didn't have any money at all, would equate to 100 extra days in jail. However, she was given the option to pay her fine and have her jail sentence suspended on the condition that she left the state. She agreed to this, but asked the judge if she could pay some of her fine, which she had on her, and then be released on her own recognizance to get the money to pay the rest of her fine. The judge agreed, telling her to return at 10 a.m. the next morning. In this original pay, she paid between $50 and $80 of her fine. And again, the newspapers kind of say different things. Well, she did not return to court the next morning because she followed the other part of the stipulation was that she leave town. She leave the states. Sheriff M.E. Finch told a reporter simply, quote, she left the state, but she didn't pay all the fine. And quote she was found two days later near contact nevada just south of the idaho nevada border the sheriff stated she would still have to serve the original 30 days serve one day for every two dollars remaining on her balance plus they were going to charge her with jailbreaking which came with an additional 90 day penalty so in total she could serve up to 195 days which is about six and a half months in jail when all was said and done she served roughly 180 days so she got about half of that potential sentence uh, cut out on august 2nd 1927 the twin Falls Times reported that Eugene had filed for divorce from Cora quote on the charges of practicing deceit and fraud in inducing him to marry her for alleged violation of her marriage vows and that she is now serving a six month term in the county jail for violation of the liquor laws end quote It's unclear how long the divorce took to go through, but it definitely went through and Eugene and Cora were divorced. Oddly, on August 9th, 1927, seven days after this report came out that they were getting divorced, the Times News reported that Cora had been released upon payment of another $80 of her fine, apparently completely ignoring that she had been reportedly sentenced to six months. And this is the last we hear of these charges. So there was kind of a a mix-up with what happened in that case, but she paid and I guess that was that. Then in November 1927, the Times News reports that Cora's son, Jewel, was being held for investigation for allegedly writing bad checks. Nothing comes of this charge, but unfortunately, it is the beginning of Jewel's troubles with the law as well. And his story from this point forward is pretty deeply intertwined with his mother's. So I'll try to tell... I'll try my best to to tell their combined stories as often as they intersect. So the 1930 had them both living in together in Twin Falls with Jewel's one-year-old son, Marvin. Jewel, at the age of 17, had married Cleo Goodrich, who was 16, in April 1928. And given how young both of them were, I wonder if they were like childhood sweethearts, something like that. Because 16 is very young, but at least he was 17. (laughs) Like, he was pretty much the same age rather than 16 and like a 50-year-old, which we see far too often. Sadly, Cleo, at 17 years old, died. Died from Streptococci septicemia, which is just a, an infection of the bloodstream, on January 19th, 1929. And their son Marvin was born on January 8th, 1929. Oh. So it's quite likely that this infection was a result of childbirth, which is so horror. It's 1929. Like theoretically, we're kind of in the modern age, and yet you just get an infection and you die from giving birth. It's so sad. horrifying. So scary. But in a really sweet moment that I found Marvin's World War II draft card lists his middle name as Cleo. So I don't know if it was if that was given to him at birth or if he ended up taking that on later, but I really love that. Jewel was just 18 years old at the time of Cleo's death, and so it's very understandable why he's now living with his mother. On September 20th, 1928, the Times News reported that Cora was, quote, on the carpet, end quote, again. Now this is just an old saying, which means that she was in trouble with a person or an organization in authority. So she just was in trouble with the law again. Not for alcohol this time, but this time for disturbing the peace. She was fine $25 and there does not to seem to be any jail time or escape. She probably paid the $25 and that was that. Sometime in the early fall of 1930, Cora and Jewel were arrested on charges of child neglect and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And usually contributing to a delinquency of a minor is related to alcohol. I don't know if that's the case for sure, but my best guess is they're probably either making alcohol or selling alcohol with Marvin in the house. And so that is enough for authorities to charge them with both of those things. Now, interestingly, Marvin, who was just one year old at the time, was allegedly sent to the state school in St. Anthony. But if he was so young, I I don't understand why he would have been sent to the state school. Especially, again, her family is in town. It's not like he can go and work. He's one. Why was he not sent to the children's home? Why was he not even sent to an orphanage? It seems like there should be so many other places he should go than the state Industrial school.
2: Maybe
1: use mouth and office yeah. words <laughs> yeah. to of the officers. We're like, like, you never catch me, cop. <laughs> <laughs> she
0: <laughs> pulls out a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, Jewel remarried on October 6, 1930 to a woman named Mildred Stokesbury in Haley. Then kind of out of nowhere, on February 11, 1931, reported from the Daily Statesman, Jewel's bond had apparently been ordered forfeited and a warrant was issued for his arrest on a prohibition violation, which he had committed with a man named B.W. Smith. A day later, the Times News reported that this warrant was not just for a prohibition violation, but was for possession and transportation of liquor. So he was indicted by a federal grand jury and he was going to be tried in federal court court, so he must have transported it over state lines. Luckily for him, he was acquitted during his jury trial. Smith was not so lucky and had to pay $250 in fines and spend eight months in jail. But as we've seen, liquor must have been a family trade because in April 1931, Cora was again arrested for a prohibition violation after police searched her home in Twin Falls and found a pint of moonshine whiskey and two kegs. One was one gallon, the other was 10 gallons, and both had a small amount of liquor in each of them. According to the Times News, two men from Filer, Bert Pay and Dick Oman reported to the police that Cora had stolen $50 from them, which prompted the police search of her home. And guess what they didn't find? The money. So I'm wondering if, like, they had a fight of some kind, some sort of disagreement, and basically uh, they turned her in knowing she had alcohol in her home and basically, you know, knew they could get her in trouble. By the time of this Times News article, no charges had been filed against her, quote, pending a decision as to whether the county or federal government will prosecute, end quote. Three months later, charges were filed against her in the boy. United States District Court on 10 counts of possession and sale of whiskey and nuisance at her residence which is 10 counts of so many as far as I can tell she served in the county jail for just a few months probably released in October 1931 but there isn't any follow-up that I can find in the newspaper but she is for sure out by October 1931
1: so no like federal prison no
0: so I don't know if if I don't know how there wouldn't be enough evidence if you find two kegs and like a pint of whiskey but maybe maybe they could only get her on a couple counts of possession or something I'm not really sure once she was out of jail it seems that together Cora and Jewel appealed Marvin's commitment to the state school but this application was denied and Marvin was sent to a quote-unquote institution per the Salt Lake Telegram which might have been the state school at St. Anthony which is what the Times News had reported again it's very odd that a two-year-old would be sent to the state school but this is apparently what happened it does appear however that at least Cora maybe Jewel too I'm not really sure they were allowed. Allowed to have Marvin visit Cora was allowed to have him visit at her house for an unspecified amount of time but it must have been at least overnight because the agreement was that she would return him to the custody of J.M. Markle but when the time came for Cora to return Marvin after a visit in October 1931 she again never showed up judge W.A. Babcock issued an order dismissing the appeal to get Marvin back in their custody and issuing a warrant for Cora's arrest on the charge of contempt of court authorities believed she was hiding out in Nevada probably because she had done that very thing when she was released from prison just a few years before, but Cora vanishes with Marvin in her custody. So on January 18th, 1932, the Times News reported that Jewel had been arrested and charged with illegal possession of intoxicating liquor after prior conviction and was now subject to prison time. So the first conviction was just jail time, but he did it again in quick succession. Now it's a felony. So he pleaded not guilty, but less than two weeks later, it was reported that he had changed his plea to guilty and he was sentenced to two to five years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Meanwhile, Cora is still missing and there's no news of her. Then, on January 20th, 1933, the Salt Lake Telegram wrote an article about the arrest of 15 members of an alleged quote-unquote gangster mob, led by J.E. Mandel and Harry LaFray. Now, it's kind of odd to hear about gangsters in Salt Lake City, but the 1930s is the era of the gangster, both in real life and in popular culture, especially movies. As we know from just a few minutes ago, Prohibition helped fuel the rise of real-life gangsters like Al Capone, Bugsy Siegel, etc., but it took a few years for Hollywood to catch. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that these gangs exist because of the movies, but I have to wonder if either the police or journalists are maybe exaggerating or emphasize this group as like gangsters or mobsters because it was so prevalent in the American lexicon. This is literally what I study in my dissertation. Not, Not fully this, but I studied these old movies. So forgive me if I do like a gangster movie rabbit hole because I found this so deeply fascinating. The first thing that we need to talk about is the production code. Prior to 1930, movies. kind of were just whatever people wanted. So there was all sorts of sort of objectionable material, or at least what people considered objectionable material in like the late 1920s this guy named William H. Hayes he and along with some religious ministers some Catholic priests stuff like that they create this production code and it starts to be enforced around 1930 and it's you know stuff like there shouldn't be killing there shouldn't you know kind of stuff that's like okay that makes sense but it's not really super strictly enforced it's kind of one of those things that's like you should really abide by these rules but there's no like strict enforcement like I said it comes out in 1930 so it's kind of there as a general rule but the first gangster movie that was released in the 1930s was 1931's Little Caesar starring Edward G. Robinson. And this movie is about a small town mobster who moves to Chicago and works his way through the ranks of organized crime until he reaches the upper echelons. This is kind of a spoiler alert so if you really want to see this movie, then maybe skip ahead a little bit. But Robinson's character Caesar Enrico Bandello, quote, lives and dies unrepentant of his crimes, end quote. So to have a criminal character die without some sort of punishment or repentance was a break from previous crime films. That's kind of part of this code is if you You do something wrong, you break the law, you have to be punished in some way. Little Caesar didn't, and it was a smash hit. People loved it. So two other enormously popular gangster films were released over the next two years. The first was The Public Enemy, which came out in 1931 with James Cagney, and Scarface from 1932, starring Paul Muni. Scarface was basically a thinly veiled biography of Al Capone, which included an incredible amount of violence depicting at least 28 deaths. The Hayes office, so the the office that came up with this original production code, wanted several things cut from the movie including a potentially incestuous relationship between the main character and his sister and then they demanded producers film a new ending condemning gangsterism the director of the film refused to film an alternate ending he was like I'm not doing that I, I like what I've got and it's it's popular I actually ended up having to hire a co-director to be able to film this alternate ending and so they ultimately cut enough stuff out of the movie and included this alternate ending enough that the Hayes office allowed it to be released but it was still so violent that many state censors didn't even show it in the like local areas so this is pretty intense so these gangster movies proved to be so popular that hollywood made 50 of them between 1930 and 1933 three years they made 50 gangster movies This is an enormously popular genre. This production code that I talk about is finally strictly enforced starting in 1934 to the point where it's not just like, yeah, you get our seal of approval. It's you do not release this without us saying you can. Because basically that's how much power they had. You know, it's much like sort of the the rating system that we have today where you have to have a rating on it in order to be legitimate anywhere. And you could to some extent release as like an independent. But the other thing to know about the film industry at this time is now when you release a film, it goes to all the theaters everywhere but back in the 30s you so like studios owned certain theater chains basically their movies would only be released in their theater chains that's why so as an independent like if you didn't necessarily have to abide by this code but where were you going to release it you didn't unless you had independent theaters you know you didn't have the ability for audiences to be able to see your movie and it really cracks down on these gangster movies and the very first rule the code says quote crimes against the law shall never be presented in a way as to throw sympathy with the crime as Against the law and justice, or to inspire others with the desire for imitation. End quote. So, anyway, there's this huge public fascination with gangsters, and apparently the Salt Lake City police were able to crack down on this particular Lafray Mandel gang. Over four days, 15 suspects had been arrested, including the two leaders. Lafray and Mandel had to face robbery charges after robbing a JCPenney store on East 21st South Street, and also first degree burglary charges for cracking the Fort Douglas Finance Office safe and the company safe of the Granite Furniture Store, which was pretty much next door. Mandel was also facing federal charges after he and another accomplice attempted to blow a safe at a University of Utah post office. So these guys are out here blowing safes, grabbing money, drinking liquor, like, they're kind of mobsters. Um. With,
1: like, the soundtrack the tabernacle choir yeah, singing right. Gangster's Paradise <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: then four alleged members of a different unnamed gang were arrested on suspicion of killing two Tooele men John Stamey and Gregory John during a service station robbery the previous November during the raid of the home that these four members were living in the police found a cache of explosives clothing and apparently some slot machines very weird list and these that had all been stolen from property at 325 Southwest Temple Street and this was sort of the official reason they used to arrest these four people. At the house, they also found letters that connected their gang to the Le Fay Mandel gang. These four members were Roy Matthews, Jack Cannon, W.S. Davis, and Mary Smith. And all four of them were put into the city jail along with a four-year-old boy. This four-year-old boy was Mary Smith's grandson and his name was Marvin Curtis. Mary Smith is Cora Shelley.
1: Wow. <gasps> Look at that. Ah, Cora. he's like rubbing elbows with some real gangsters. Yeah.
0: According to the Deseret News, Cora had fled with Marvin first to Los Angeles. Love that place. But when it was discovered she was in Los Angeles, authorities then lose track of her again until her arrest in Salt Lake City. And I wonder if she used the alias Mary Smith with the police to avoid being detected as Cora Atkinson Cora Shelley. Good <laughs> it's, name it's Mary for Mary Smith. Uh, in Utah, in Utah that's That's the place
3: to do it. So, Skye, you're saying that Cora is the little Caesar of Salt Lake City. I mean,
0: (laughs) yes, but also no, because basically because she's not involved with this at all. Yeah. So upon her arrest, Idaho authorities stated they would likely charge her with kidnapping and Marvin would be given over to the children's home in Boise. Two days later, the Ogden Standard Examiner reported, however, that Cora would be freed because she had no connection to these two men's deaths. It remains unclear as to why she was even associated with them much less why she was arrested with them in that home. There's no explanation as to why that happened at all. So I think it's very strange. But maybe she was maybe romantically involved with one of them. I mean, by then, this is what, 1930? She's only in her 50s. So it's not like she's like super old. I don't know why she was with them. This same article from the Ogden Standard Examiner also stated that the Salt Lake City Chief of Police consulted with the Twin Falls Chief of Police and the Twin Falls County Sheriff. And it was decided that Cora could keep Marvin in her custody, quote, for the present. At least, end quote. And this is a quote from the article, which I love. It says, quote, the chief said his information was that Mrs. Shelley had shown a great affection for her grandson and provided for him for the last year, end quote. And so I think because of that, they were like, OK, well, you can keep him. And by this point, I think Jewel was in the penitentiary still. So it was like, OK, the option are to send him to this strange children's home or stay with his grandmother because his grandmother, other than taking him, didn't apparently do anything wrong. So as far as I could tell, she wasn't charged with kidnapping or if she was, she didn't serve any time in jail or the penitentiary for it. She then settles down after all of this chaos. She settles down with Jewel and Marvin in Ogden, Utah by the 1940s. Both her son and her grandson list her as their next of kin on their World War II registration cards, though they both list her name as Mrs. Lewis Shelley. I don't know why Lewis, but maybe Eugene really didn't want to have anything to do with her, so she just took someone else's name. I don't know. The 1950 census lists the three of them living in Ogden, along with Jewel's wife, who apparently also was named Cleo. And overall, the family seemed to live a very quiet life, which we love to see after the chaos of the 1920s and 1930s and then the Ogden Standard Examiner reported on May 31st 1955 that Cora had passed away in Ogden she was survived by her son and her grandson quote whom she had reared so that is the story of our number 2529
1: Cora Atkinson
3: that's uh interesting for sure when they brought her into the prison they specified beer
2: Uh I
1: guess that was foreshadowing the the, the beer smuggling or the beer brewing yeah fun like in Downtown Boise. I think Mm -hmm. Bohemian Brewery was right where City Hall was at this time. Uh So I wonder if she ever like ooh bohemia but let's go try this out
3: (laughs) you see so many prohibition violators that come from europe or Mm -hmm. families come from europe and just are unwilling to deal with the lack of alcohol yeah i
0: mean it's so it's not a big deal there it's it's really the the american culture at the time that was so influenced by protestant religion that really saw alcohol as this huge problem because it kind of was but europeans just treat alcohol with a different attitude and so these europeans would come and be like, well, I don't see why this is an issue, so I'm just going to keep making it and drinking it. It's absolutely a good point to make.
3: Here's your fun fact How many gallons of alcohol did a man drink before prohibition?
0: Oh, probably so many because the water was bad. <laughs>
3: seven gallons per year.
0: Well, that's a lot of alcohol. And that,
3: when I say men, that this is not a men and women thing. Right. This is like men were right.
0: drinking seven
3: right. gallons. So, in contrast, modern average is two. Oh, and okay. Of course, when, when we say this statistic, it's hard liquor only. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't include beers and wines. Seven gallons
1: of whiskey. That is insane. (laughs) That's that's a lot of
3: whiskey. (sighs) If they they keep trying, someday they'll catch up with me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
0: So, So Sam's out here being like, yeah, I absolutely would have been arrested during Prohibition. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought that was. Her story was kind of short enough, but also had these pockets of space that I could kind of fill in with Bohemia. And then, of course, like I had to talk about movies. (laughs) It consumes my whole life. It is my entire personality or like classic films. So I was excited. I actually do need to watch
1: those movies. But I was going to say, did you watch? Have you watched The Scarface?
0: No, I I would probably start with uh, Little Caesar because I do like Edward G. Robinson. And also, I really do love James Cagney. So I'd probably I'd probably go and chronological order 30 31 32 so i do need to watch those but i'm i'm just in my actress phase still where it's Mm -hmm. like i just want to see the ladies and there are no ladies especially not ladies that get treated well in these gangster movies to now get into the phase where it's like, I need to start watching legitimate classics because for a really long time, I like I saw The Music Man for the very first time at the TCM Film Festival. And it's like a quintessential 60s musical. I saw it on the biggest screen in North America with the lead actress in attendance. It's going to be a brag for the rest of my life wow. because it was... <sighs> The greatest one of the greatest experiences Incredible. of my life and i was in the middle of la when i was writing this and i was like i guess i just have to talk about these movies so apologies if anyone found it boring but yeah i thought that with these little pockets i could kind of sink this extra information and in. it really rounded out her story in a really interesting way so what
1: an anyway interesting story and i like that it spans you know international yeah and yeah. then so idaho with yeah. Like cattle yeah and sheep and uh-huh. prohibition right
0: and, wow yeah she lived quite a life so yeah. uh, feels so good to be back i love. Uh-huh. I love recording yeah. in person. I love that you were able me to too. join us oh, for the second me, yeah. half of me it, too. and uh, hopefully we get you doing your own stories again soon but uh, yes
1: i've got a list i've got my got my fellas i want to talk about it's just uh finding the time
0: yes (sighs) well the good news is and this hasn't been mentioned on the podcast before but i guess now is as good as time as any but i was hired as a a historical consultant for the western states arts federation and so i will be working part-time on that and part-time on my dissertation for the next about a year so i'll you know we'll pop in with stories when we can but but i'm so happy to be back doing it right now it's so much fun and it's so good to see you guys um and, and talk with you guys and tell these uh, really interesting stories so
3: great job sky what an interesting story anthony always awesome to have you in the studio i forgot to name my sources yes please do so of course i use ancestry prison files uh, newspapers.com and then i use the last outlaws and the american west history myth and legacy for the big die-up information. And those are all books. Yeah, those two are books. And, of course, Old Women of the New West is where I took
1: that prohibition fact from. All right, well, fantastic work, both of you. Do your own time.
0: Do your own number.
1: Don't steal cows. Don't steal cows.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Move. <laughs>
1: If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.
3: Special thanks for voice actors Tristan Hafer, Logan Adams, Alex Provon, Eric Overzack, and Brady McGurk.